It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, February 19th, 2024. I'm Mike Emanuel. House Republicans were successful in impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Next up, there's expected to be a trial in the Senate. Critics say the president could address the massive flow of migrants now. It shows how unserious Joe Biden is about coming together to address our nation's most pressing issues. Biden has the power to end the border crisis tomorrow. Minnesota Republican Congressman Tom Emmer is the House Majority Whip. I'm Dana Perino. On President's Day, we're taking a look at our nation's history. More specifically, the pursuits and influence of America's former commander-in-chiefs after leaving the White House. Even if we want ex-presidents to go away, we still care what they think. They still exert an enormous amount of leverage. And in modern times, the ex-presidency is a treasure. But it's also America's burden. And I'm Paul Batura. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Fallout continues following the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. President Biden used the news to hammer home this point. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. We had to provide the funding so Ukraine can keep defending itself against Putin's vicious onslaughts and war crimes. There's also intelligence suggesting Russia is weaponizing space. President Biden tried to reassure the American people There is no reason to panic. There is no nuclear threat to the people of America or anywhere else in the world with what Russia is doing at the moment, number one. President Biden's administration is also taking a great deal of heat about the ongoing crisis at the border. South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott says the president is in deep trouble on that issue. And it is the number one issue, according to the American people. That's why he's underwater, according to all the polls against President Trump. Failures at the border led to House Republicans impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House Speaker Mike Johnson revealed the effort was successful. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 213. The resolution is adopted. Mayorkas offered his reaction to it on CNN's Newsnight. I don't let it distract me uh, from the work. Uh, Would I have preferred that correctness had prevailed? Um, Of course so. The fact that it did not does not uh, slow me down in doing the work that um, I'm tasked to do by the president of the United States. Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Harriet Hageman will be one of the House impeachment managers in a Senate trial. She was my guest on Fox News Live. We look at the way that he violated the law. We present that in the fact that he has ignored immigration law. He has ignored what Congress has set down as as being the requirements for the Secretary of Department of Homeland and Security. As Republican leaders argue, Mayorkas deserved to be held accountable. Secretary Mayorkas's willful refusal to enforce federal law has created an unprecedented crisis in our southern border, and it's left innocent Americans to pay the price. House Majority Whip Tom Emmer is a Minnesota Republican. Secretary Mayorkas 
failed to do the honorable thing by resigning. You're right. The House Republicans actually fulfilled our constitutional duty by voting to impeach. Now, as it goes to the Senate, I, I think uh, their credibility is on the line. I'm sure they could dispatch with it the Schumer-controlled Senate uh, and ignore that there's a problem. But listen, uh, the vast majority of Americans right now, this is their number one issue. Uh, it is the uh, insecurity at our southern border where you've had uh, somewhere around 12 million illegals cross the southern border in the last, uh, well, since Joe Biden took office. Uh, they ignored it up until recently, but uh, now it's become a political liability for them. So I'm sure they're uh, left in a position where they have to decide whether they're going to do the right thing and address the fact that uh, this uh, particular public servant has uh, not only violated his oath of, uh, of office, but he has uh, purposely subverted uh, U.S. Uh, immigration laws and has instructed his subordinates to do the same. And he's repeatedly lied to Congress. So uh, we impeached him. They should uh, finish the job uh, or the secretary should resign. But we'll see. Maybe they want to handle this in the most political way possible and just ignore it, in which case the American people will hold them accountable in November. The Senate passed its $95 billion foreign aid package last week. Now it heads to the House. Speaker Johnson has previously said he does not plan to bring the bill to the floor. Is it dead on arrival? Well, look, House Republicans have been very clear about this. Any national security supplemental legislation must secure our own border. Uh, we're not going to rubber stamp the Senate's foreign aid package just because they quickly abandoned border security talks. The House is going to continue to work its will. And uh, we also need answers that the Biden White House has ignored about the Ukraine uh, aid and where it's going, what oversight mechanisms are in place, and what is the strategy for uh, ending this war. And it, it, you, you have to look at uh, the fact that this Senate supplemental that they sent over, Mike, is also unnecessarily bloated. Uh, we could send the necessary, if you could take care of the first issues, the border and the uh, questions regarding where the uh, aid is going, we could send necessary weapons to Ukraine for a lot less than the $60 billion they put in that supplemental. Uh, frankly, the U.S. should not be providing the economic and direct government support that is included in the uh, legislation that was sent over, especially since the EU just recently passed an economic aid package worth over 50 billion euros for Ukraine. The only path of getting this passed in the House is by scrutinizing every dollar, separating the issues and including policies that will actually be successful uh, in securing the border. Some of your House colleagues unveiled a bill that packaged foreign aid for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, along with some border security measures. What do you make of this bill and how Republican leadership will respond? Well, we're a member driven conference uh, that welcomes all ideas. So I'm sure we'll see debate of many ideas if the speaker weighs his options. If uh, people who are paying attention know uh, that uh, at least on the uh, on the Republican House, uh, we are actually uh, working through issues to secure our southern border. I mean, think about it, Mike. We sent a bill over last May that did five things. It finished the wall. It reformed the president's parole authority to determine who gets to come in and how many. Uh, it reformed the broken asylum process. It ended catch and release, and it restored Remain in Mexico, which our Border Patrol has told us just the last one, uh, Remain in Mexico, would staunch the flow by 70 percent overnight. 
So far, all the Senate provided uh, is something that did nothing on the wall, did nothing on parole, did nothing on asylum, uh, didn't restore uh, remain in Mexico. And I would argue codified what uh, Secretary Mayorkas is already doing illegally at the southern border by saying that uh, the secretary has uh, shut down authority when you start to have 5,000 illegals coming across the southern border on any given day. That's, in fact, what he's been allowing, uh, subverting our law. If you look back just in December, where over 300,000 people came across the border, they were averaging about 10,000 a day. So uh, this is uh, uh, the issue. Uh, It's great that the Republicans in the House have been leading And we'll continue to have these discussions as a conference, but uh, we are committed to securing that southern border and protecting Americans. I don't need to remind you it's an election year when it's frequently difficult to get big things done. Considering the crisis at our southern border, are you optimistic there is something that can pass the House, pass the Senate, and reach the president's desk as it relates to the border this election year? Well, I guess that's up to Chuck Schumer, and more importantly, it's up to President Biden. And I mean, am I hopeful? I'm always hopeful because we're uh, we're here to do the work that the American people expect us to do. And one of the primary issues for the American people today is securing that border. Uh, And when you see that the president is refusing to sit down with the speaker and talk through these issues, uh, it shows how unserious Joe Biden is about coming together to address our nation's most pressing issues. I mean, frankly, Mike, uh, Biden has the power to end the border crisis tomorrow by reversing the 64 executive actions taken by him and his administration that have effectively opened our borders. And yet he refuses. So uh, while I'm hopeful, uh, it is really in uh, uh, the president's court uh, to make sure that something gets done. And until he gets serious, which includes sitting down with the uh, Republican Speaker of the House, to discuss how we could do this together, nothing is moving. Republicans lost a seat in the House as Tom Suozzi won the special election for New York's 3rd Congressional District. As the House Majority Whip, what challenges does the party face given the narrow majority? Well, you know, Mike, everybody says, wouldn't it be great to have 230 or 240? Uh, Look, it's going to be just as hard no matter how big it is or how small it is. The key is to work with every single member to hear them and not just listen to them, but to hear what they're saying uh, and try to make sure that they can achieve two things. The first two things that every member I've told them that they have to achieve is one, take care of the people who put you in Congress. It's the voters at home that matter. No one in Washington, D.C. casts a vote for you. Second, you take care of yourself. If you can do those two things, Mike, You can be part of the Republican team and the Republican agenda. And then my job as the whip is to communicate that from the members up to the uh, speaker and our leadership, that this is what uh, is possible uh, with the different points of view that we have in our in our conference. And you've seen this work. I mean, we did it on the debt ceiling deal that nobody thought we could get done. We did it with the parental bill of rights. We did it with the strongest border security act uh, passed in the, the last 20 years in the house. And by the way, You had much larger Republican majorities who failed to do that within the last 20 years uh, when this uh, uh, little train that could made sure that it got done. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in an Arctic prison. Questions about his death are being raised by leaders across the globe. President Biden's put the blame on President Putin. Does the death of Navalny change the dynamic in the war on Ukraine? 
Listen, I, I agree with the president uh, blaming uh, uh, Putin, but the president needs to uh, look in the mirror. Uh, when you're pointing at somebody else, remember, turn your hand over. You always have at least three fingers pointing right back at you. And between Russia's plans for nuclear capability in space, the mm-hmm. Navalny's likely murder, Russia knows they won't face any real consequences under Joe Biden. This administration has actually forced the world to rely on Russia for energy by prioritizing climate policies over our national security. Uh, Frankly, peace through strength is the only way forward, Mike. And uh, this president has got to get the message and start uh, start acting like the uh, commander in chief instead of uh, politicizing every one of these issues. Congress is facing another couple of deadlines to avoid a government shutdown. What do you think negotiations will look like? And will we see a long term funding agreement? You're right. The first deadline is March 1st. The second deadline is March 8th. Frankly, we're going to run into a time problem. I can tell you that the 12 appropriations bills are being closed uh, Mm -hmm. between the House and the Senate, which means that they have reached agreement on these bills. Uh, several of them are already closed. Uh, a couple of them are waiting for the uh, the final approval. I think you'll start seeing uh, legislative text. Uh, we should uh, by the end of the coming week because it's going to have to go through the Congressional Budget Office, which takes anywhere from, uh, well, it typically takes about five days. Uh, they'll probably have to speed it up because we come back a week from Tuesday and then we'll have to act pretty quickly. But uh, things are moving, and what you should see is we should close out the uh, the 12 appropriations bills for the 2024 budget, and we should get to work on 25. And uh, all goes well. We should be there by the end of uh, by the end of March. Majority Whip Tom Emmer of the great state of Minnesota. Thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful week, sir. You as well, Mike. Thanks for having me. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paul Batura with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. It's President's Day, a moment for Americans to honor and celebrate the leaders who shaped our nation. Most citizens concern themselves with what presidents are doing while in office. Their policy moves as the manager of the executive branch, military moves as commander in chief, and how they work with Congress and what issues they champion. But what happens when a president leaves office? What does someone do once they retire from one of the most powerful jobs in the world. The new book, Life After Power, explores seven presidents and their search for purpose beyond the White House. So, Dana, my last book was was called Accidental Presidents, and it was about what happens when the president dies in (laughs) office. So once I finished that book, I wanted to ask the question, what happens when the president survives the office? The book's author, Jared Cohen, is president of Global Affairs at Goldman Sachs and a former advisor to two secretaries of state. I've always been interested in this question many of us are going to ask our entire lives of like, what do we do next? And you look to entrepreneurs and you look to CEOs and we never look to the presidency in part because we don't think about what happens after they leave office. And what was interesting is when I canvassed the 45 men who've been president 46 times, I found that there really were only seven that were even worth 
talking about. And those seven were very worth talking about because each of them got after this question of what do you do, you know, after the most dramatic retirement in the world, after you've kind of given up what was supposed to be or lost what Mm -hmm. was supposed to be your greatest act. And you take these sort of seemingly unrelatable people, these presidents of the United States, and you basically dig into their biggest vulnerabilities um, when they come back down to earth. And what's left behind is an enormous amount of prescriptions for the rest of us, not just for what to do in retirement, but just how to think about transition in general. It's, It's fascinating. And I do want to start with my favorite president, not President Bush 43. He is my actual favorite president. But in history, the George Washington example was so unusual at the time and set America on a very good course for the future about you know, deciding to walk away. That, that, that's right. If, if you think about the George Washington precedent um, of serving two terms, that precedent doesn't get codified until after FDR is elected mm-hmm. for a fourth time you know, with the 22nd Amendment. So to me, that's one of the things that's so remarkable about the American democratic experience. First of all, you know, the founders were worried about what to do with ex-presidents. So Alexander Hamilton, my favorite, is he asked the question in Federalist 72, does it serve the stability of the government and our republic to have half a dozen or so men um, who were elevated to the presidency basically wandering around Mm -hmm. the rest of us like discontented ghosts? And if you look at, you know, kind of 200 plus years later, when it came to presidential term limits, we kind of winged it. But to me, the fact that we winged it and presidents gave up power, um, despite the fact that they weren't term limited until the 22nd Amendment, what it tells you is, you know, this idea of former presidents is a feature of democracies, not a bug. Mm -hmm. You know, authoritarian systems don't have former presidents, or if they do, they're usually in prison or somewhere else. And so, you know, to me, by the time we get to the 22nd Amendment, this idea of a Washington principle has achieved a status as a norm in and of itself. Um, And even with a 22nd Amendment that limits the president to two terms, what I find is that norm now has an encore um, where it's used as a frame of reference for how former presidents are supposed to behave, which is Mm -hmm. why I think George Bush, you know, George W. Bush or Bush 43 Mm -hmm. is such a revered individual today. Yeah. But let me back up on one thing. I thought this was interesting. You say that a record 4.1 million Americans are going to hit the retirement age of 65 this year. And that's called the silver tsunami. So a lot of people right now are thinking about this next step in their life. And what can people like that learn from this book? And you could maybe give me a couple of examples. I thought the... um, Thomas Jefferson example was an interesting one in terms of turning to academia as a way to serve. Yeah, so the so the the silver tsunami is interesting because it's happening at a time where the whole idea of retirement has changed. Retirement used to actually be a thing where you did it and it was done and you just kind of went home and read books and hung out with your family. In modern times, the concept of retirement has evolved into something that looks more like a mirage than a reality. What it means is that career that you've spent your whole life building, at some point you reach the top of what said career was, and you think about what to do next, and there's more life to live mm. after that. And so if you look at the seven presidents that I focused on, you know, each one will relate to a reader in a different way. Right. So, you know, not everybody is the same. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson is a great example for somebody who has viewed themselves as a lifelong founder or a serial entrepreneur. He basically took 
one of the early ideas he had, which was to found a brand new institution to educate the next generation, to iterate on the flaws of something else great that he founded, which was the Republic, uh, which is why he went on to found UVA. I think John Quincy Adams is interesting because, you know, he's defeated for re-election in 1828 and all he knows how to do is serve. And so he goes on to have a second act serving nine terms in the House of Representatives. I was very interested in the chapter on Herbert Hoover because you think of somebody who had the worst press, right? And he, instead of going home and licking his wounds, he comes back and, and fights. And there were some of the things in here that I didn't even know about Herbert Hoover. And I really admire what he was able to do and hold his head high. So I I call the Herbert Hoover chapter a story of recovery Mm -hmm. because there were two things that Herbert Hoover had uh, or three things that he had before the president. He was known as a great executive, right? He had been a self-made millionaire. He was an orphan. He was known as the great humanitarian and his name meant something significant. Mm -hmm. And when he loses his bid for reelection to FDR in 1932, he spends his 32-year post-presidency trying to recover what he lost. And it's only when he decides he's done trying to win back the presidency after the 1940 election that he removes any sense of vanity around his own name. And in his lifetime, he again becomes the great humanitarian. We haven't talked too much about Grover Cleveland because there's a former president right now who is trying to pull a Cleveland, and that would be President Trump to try to win a non-consecutive term. Tell me about Grover Cleveland's sort of trajectory there. Well, first of all, historically, Grover Cleveland was not, you know, the first president or the only president to try to make a comeback. But historically, if you look at those that have tried, former presidents have not historically made good presidential candidates. But Grover Cleveland is the only former president until Donald Trump to achieve the nomination of a major party. So this is significant, Dana, because this is the fir- this current election is likely going to be the first and only time since 1892 where you have a presidential rematch um, uh, between presidents who are the nominees of the two major parties. It also shows you how off script we've gone in our own political evolution. Um, there's one key difference. Grover Cleveland never lost the popular vote. Um, he wins the popular vote three times. He lost mm. the election in 1888 because he stood on principle and basically took a position on the tariff that was different from the electorate. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being the right decision for the country. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're in, you know, similar Grover Cleveland territory, but we're, 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 we're in unique territory in the sense that Donald Trump is likely to be the nominee for the Republican Party on the heels of having lost the popular vote last mm-hmm. time. Jimmy Carter went into hospice on February 18th of last year. Uh, He's still alive. His wife, Rosalind, died in December. And he did have a pretty amazing post-presidency. I don't know if he always believed in the one president at a time rule. I mean, what a life and legacy when it comes to humanitarian causes. So if you think, so Jimmy Carter's example is an incredible, he's sort of the founding father of the post-presidency, right? So if Herbert Hoover was the one who emerged as, you know, a not quiet ex-president who, you know, acted as an elder statesman. Jimmy Carter's the one who basically looked at that and built proper infrastructure around it. He essentially created a whole post-presidential administration. And if you think back to Alexander Hamilton's concern about ex-presidents, you know, wandering around like discontented ghosts, the answer to, 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 to Hamilton's concern is that ex-presidents can either be tremendous allies to their successors or formidable adversaries and critics of their successors. And Jimmy Carter did both. So he he was consistently a partner and a thorn in the side of mm-hmm. all of his successors. And two of my favorite examples of this, um, 
are, you know, when, when George H.W. Bush is, is getting ready to, 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 you know, launch the invasion of Iraq to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, Jimmy Carter decides to take it upon himself to write to the different members of the permanent members of the Security Council, basically telling them to go against U.S. policy. Or when Bill Clinton sends Jimmy Carter to North Korea in 1994, he knows enough to tell Carter um, that you're a messenger. You're not instructed or authorized to make any policy. And what happens? He turns on CNN and Carter's announcing an entire nuclear deal that he's negotiated. But Jimmy Carter also cured guinea worm. Jimmy Carter pioneered modern day election monitoring and has done a tremendous amount to advance democracy around the world. So in many respects, he, 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 he represents the modern post-presidency. And he represents this idea that even if we want ex-presidents to go away, we still care what they think. They still exert an enormous amount of leverage. And in modern times, the ex-presidency is a treasure, but it's also America's burden any last piece of advice for these people who are thinking about their next step? Is there a pattern of purpose, whether it be volunteering or is it hobbies or is, is there something that so anybody listening to this who might have a parent or if they're listening and they're also thinking about what their next step is, that there's hope and purpose in getting up every day and having something to do? So I think there's a couple takeaways that I find that are consistent threads across really seven very different case studies. Um, first of all, read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, there's something in there for everyone. But the first is if you're making that transition, understand what your most core values are and what you're most principled about. And you know, your your sort of your 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 retirement gives you an opportunity to pursue those principles in ways that you didn't have the bandwidth or time before, where maybe you were constrained. The second is. Um, you know, I think a lot of presidents make a big mistake, which is the pace of that kind of ultimate act is so significant that once you leave it, um, you know, there's sort of an inclination to jump right into the next thing. The most successful post-presidencies began with a period in which you kind of organize your life, get used to the new pace. Um, it's a mistake to jump right in. Having at least a year of transition and breathing room, it's counterintuitive, but incredibly important. And then I think the third thing that's so important um, is having an endless learning experience. One of the things that comes with leaving what you think is the most important job you'll ever have is you get closer to mortality. And having that endless learning experience is something that gives you an excuse to wake Mm -hmm. up Every single day, keep your mind moving. Um, if you just hold on to, you know, sort of, you know, the relics of your your, your previous chapter, eventually you age out of it. Um, and so, finding a timeless learning experience to keep you going is one of the things that I think is key to the longevity of these presidents. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Thanks for being here. All right, thanks, Dana. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday is President's Day, officially George Washington's birthday. The federal holiday honors all presidents that have served in the highest office in the nation. Tuesday, Laura Ingram hosts a town hall with former President Donald Trump. The Republican frontrunner will answer questions focusing on domestic and foreign policy challenges, as well as his ongoing legal matters. Wednesday, the trial of Hannah Gutierrez-Reed gets underway in New Mexico. She's the armor on the set of the movie Rust, where Alec Baldwin fatally 
shot cinematographer Helena Hutchins with a gun he said he thought was not loaded. She's charged with involuntary manslaughter, among others. Baldwin has also pleaded not guilty to a charge of involuntary manslaughter. Thursday, the unofficial start of baseball begins when the Dodgers take on the Padres in the first game of the spring training season. Saturday, the latest in the Republican presidential race takes place, the South Carolina primary. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Tom Graham, Fox News. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Patera. What's on your mind? Headlines of unnamed national security threats involving Russian space nukes monopolized the headlines for a portion of last week. Tensions with Russia brings back memories for many of a certain age. But the peculiar positioning of the reported crisis was very much a reflection of modern political and cultural dysfunction. It all started when a member of Congress cryptically shared news of a developing international threat. Members of Congress were invited to come to the Capitol and view the report in a secure location. A source qualified it as very concerning and very sensitive. They said it was a big deal. Some reported the news was leaked because elected officials didn't trust it would be taken seriously at all. Additional details emerged as the day wore on, noting the threat involved Russia's capability of deploying nuclear weapons in outer space that could or would disable U.S. satellites. Of course, such action would devastate our communication systems and trigger untold global consequences. Now, it didn't take long before analysts, critics, skeptics, and conspiratorialists took to social media and television to weigh in. Some suggested there wasn't any crisis at all. Instead, they said the story was a devious way to shore up international aid for Ukraine in their war against Russia. In the interest of transparency, others called for the immediate declassification of the intelligence. Now, underlying and framing much of the speculation and conjecture is a deep and growing distrust in our government. Of course, skepticism and frustration with bureaucracy have existed for a long time. In fact, it was this very sentiment that fueled the American Revolution with Great Britain. In more recent years, many Americans have resonated with Ronald Reagan's famous quip that, quote, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, end quote. But however evergreen wariness and cynicism may be of Big Brother, the corrosiveness of it can't be overstated. Whenever and wherever there's a lack of trust, relationships break down and suspicions go up. Whether it's in a marriage, in a home, or in a White House or State House administration, distrust leads to metaphorical disease and outright dysfunction. The Apostle Paul said Christians were subject to governing authorities, but that allegiance isn't sacrosanct. When Peter and the Apostles were chastised for ignoring the government and preaching about Jesus, they replied, quote, we must obey God rather than men, end quote. Circumstance and context are important. What radical activists and raging secularists don't seem to understand is that good Christians make for excellent citizens. Instead of trying to censor, stifle, or outright curtail Christian expression in the culture, they'd be much better off allowing the free exercise of faith. 
That's because when you trust Christians, those Christians will in turn be more likely to trust or at least give those in power the benefit of the doubt. The First Amendment acknowledged the collective good that people of faith possess. And yet for decades now, antagonists have been trying to undermine and silence followers of Jesus. Because governments have trusted Christians, hospitals have been built, sick people have been cared for and cured, disaster victims have been rescued, and children have been educated, mentored, protected, and even adopted. And that's just scratching the surface. Trust men and they will be true to you, observed Emerson. Treat them greatly and they will show themselves great. If we want to strengthen and restore the foundations of America, government officials can begin by reestablishing and renewing trust with Christians. That's accomplished several ways, but first and foremost, by respecting and extending the constitutionally authorized religious freedoms our forefathers fought and died to protect. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.